married or younger, there's a special service downstairs. You're welcome to go at this time. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Thessalonian letters. New Testament, about two-thirds of the way back, First and Second Thessalonians. For those of you that may be just joining us, we have been studying the subject of prayer. And most recently, last couple of weeks, we've been studying the prayers of Paul and his specific uh, way of praying for the churches. One of the things that Paul says in Ephesians, it's a pretty bold statement. He says, watch me, follow me, do what I do, even as I follow Jesus Christ. So in other words, he says, pattern your life after my example. That's uh, that's a pretty tall order for any of us to live up to, is it? Not so much following Paul, but saying, follow me and I'll lead you to Christ. And Paul says that, and I believe that when he prays, he's also modeling for us how to pray, how to intercede for others. And so we've been looking at his prayers in, in an effort to learn how better to be intercessors and and prayers, prayer warriors. Let me tell you a little bit about the church at Thessalonica and a little bit about these two letters. This was one of uh, Paul's earliest missionary efforts. When they went to Thessalonica, a church was planted. New believers, freshly in love with Jesus, ready to follow him. Paul spent some time there and and then he moved on. And after a while, he got word that they were going through some struggles. They were having some difficulties. And Paul, because he had lived in the town for a season, knew a little bit about the community, and he knew a little bit about the people. You know, towns have their own personality just like people do. And churches, by the way, have their own personality. And you kind of have your own uh, uh, sense of uh, character and where your strengths are and your weaknesses are. Towns are started for different reasons. And Thessalonica, he kind of knew what the town was like. He knew what the people were like. And when he heard that they were facing some difficulties, he became concerned for them, lest they fall into some of those patterns of weakness that I think that he had observed. And so, uh, by the time he gets around to writing the first letter, he had received a second wave of information saying they were holding fast to the faith, and he was so glad to hear it. But he said, in essence, in the letter, I've been praying for you, and I've been praying for my concerns for you, because when you're undergoing difficult times, he says, and although he doesn't state that anyone in Thessalonica was actively having these problems, I think he recognized the tendency and under pressure the temptation to move in that direction. One of them was that they might have a tendency to be lazy, to lack industry, not to be willing to work. The Bible has a very strong work ethic. And when you look at Scripture and you look at the work ethic that the Bible presents, workaholism certainly is the extreme that the Bible, you know, there's warning, not specifically in those terms, but there's warning about going that way. But there's also strong statements in the Scripture about being a hard-working people. In fact, the Scripture says if a, if a man who is able-bodied and capable is not working, 
then don't feed him. Don't, don't let him eat. Don't go give him food. Because if he's not willing to work, then he doesn't deserve to have food. That's pretty basic, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's, that's right down where you live. And the scripture basically says that Jesus, speaking of the kingdom, says, Work, for the night is coming when man's work is done. There's going to come a time when there's no more work to do because Jesus has arrived and the kingdom is complete. But he says, until that time, you be busy and be about the business of the kingdom. Be proactive, as we would say today. Be involved. So Paul knew that the Thessalonians kind of had this tendency maybe to back away from work. The other tendency that seems to creep up some in chapters 2 and 3 is that there may have been a likelihood in Thessalonica towards sexual immorality or, or immorality of various sorts. You know, and we see that in different cultures at different times and places. I would say our culture is currently saturated with, um, with sexual pressure, with everything, sex sells everything. And everywhere you look, there, there's sexual pressure, sexual innuendo. Uh, we're just kind of obsessed with the notion. And I think Paul realized that for, for the Thessalonians, here was an area where they might have a difficult time. And so as he expresses to them his concern, he's glad to hear that they're okay, he's glad to hear that they're still in the faith, he says, there's some things that I've been praying for you. And those prayers are found in chapter 3 and chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. If you'd like to look at chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, I'm going to read that from the New International Version, and your study guide has it in New American Standard. Here's what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 3.11, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just the way ours does for you. May He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of His holy ones. And then in chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, as he concludes his letter, he says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. So when we look at these two prayers... There's really three basic things that Paul is praying for them. And I want you to see this morning how practical and how specific Paul's prayers are for these people. The first thing he prays is that your love will abound and increase more and more. And then he prays that God would establish their hearts in holiness or sanctification without blame. And then finally, that God would preserve them in holiness and without blame, through and through their spirit, their soul, and their body, until Jesus comes. Let's look at those. Here's the people I told you that he had learned were undergoing stressful times. And he says, I want to pray for you that your love will grow, will increase, and abound. Why would you pray that for people in stress? Why do you think? In our leadership team meeting Thursday evening, 
We had a special meeting during the week, and we met to talk about mission and vision. One of our leadership team members felt a burden to pray for everyone in the church. The leadership team should pray for all the people in the church. And so uh, we brought a church directory, and I felt like maybe the best way to do that would be to take a page out of the directory and give it to everyone around the room, and we would take some time to pray for the people that were on the pages that we received. I think there were a couple of pages left over, and I think Carrie and I took an extra page. So I had two pages of the church directory, and we went to prayer, and we just spent some time in quiet in God's presence. And I looked at the names of the families on my two pages. I had 16 families on two pages. And I began to pray for them. And I realized as I was praying that of the 16 families that were on my two pages, 15 of those families was undergoing some kind of family stress. They either needed a job, or they needed healing, or there were relationship troubles, and they needed God to touch them. And as I began to pray for those families... All of a sudden, I just got kind of an overwhelming sense. I have 16 families, 15 of whom I know are in crisis. Who's on the other pages? And I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about how many of you in our fellowship are going through times in your life that are stressful. And when you're going through those difficult times, what's, what's our tendency? We tend to focus on ourselves. You know, and I'm not saying that in, in a chastising way. I'm saying that that is human, normal human nature. We tend to focus where, where we're struggling. These are the things that they, they keep you awake at night, perhaps. They occupy your thoughts during the day. If you have spare time, you're investing energy in trying to solve some of those problems. Some of them have intruded so majorly in your life that they're demanding your time and attention. And it's not even a matter of extra time. It's it's time you don't even have having to be committed. And in the midst of that, the natural tendency is to become burdened down and to focus inwardly. And can you see why Paul would pray what he did? I pray that your love would increase and abound more and more toward one another and toward those outside. Because the temptation is to become inward. And when we finished praying, one of, one, of the, one of the leadership team members, I, I brought up that insight that had come to me in prayer. One of the leadership team members, I could tell, right on the verge of tears, said, how important is it for us to love each other and care for each other in the family? You see, because... When you bear a burden by yourself, it feels awfully lonely. But when you share your burden and others begin to carry it with you, even if they have their own and they share theirs with you, when you're in it together, 
the burdens are lighter, faith is increased. Remember the Hebrews when, when Paul, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews wrote to the, to the Hebrew believers and, he's, and they were considering abandoning the faith. They were so stressed out. And, and the writer of Hebrews wrote to them and says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but get together more and more as you see the, the day of Christ approaching, get together more frequently and consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Because that's the tendency is to withdraw. When we need to come together, when we need to pull together, when we need to be together. And Paul prays for them. He says, I want your love to abound and grow. To grow means that your love is getting deeper, wider, fuller, richer. And abounding means it's overflowing everywhere. I want you to be loving people. I want you to love each other. I want you to love people that are outside the church. I want you to, I want you to be involved in love. Because in that is freedom and deliverance and, and victory in Christ. I'm praying for you for that. And then he says, in these pressures you've been going through, I know you're dealing with temptations, so I'm praying that you will be sanctified, made holy. And you know, when we think about that, that's one of those God words, right? It's like one of those things that we say, whoa, that's, you know, that term just defies understanding. Or else we think about it and say, Man, that's like talking like what God is like. And we have a tendency to take holiness and sanctification and sort of put that in a religious realm. And it's just enough out of reach that we can sort of absolve our conscience by writing it off, you know. Okay, holiness is great, but, you know, it's not possible. But Paul mixes an interesting word here in his prayer for holiness. He says that your heart will be without blame. And I thought about what is the difference between holiness in the ultimate sense and and holiness which involves the lack of blame. Let me tell you a story. Hopefully this will make it clear. It may just confuse you more than ever. (laughs) But uh, John and I were out riding around yesterday, and I was in his car. He was driving. And... uh, We were going to a store and going through a parking lot, and he stopped, and I didn't know why he was stopping. And, you know, I thought, why are you stopping? I mean, I didn't say it, fortunately, because I would have confirmed that I was an idiot. But I was was wondering, why are you stopping? And then, as I looked more closely, I realized hidden behind a, a relatively young locust tree was a stop sign that in the passenger seat I could not see. And I was thinking about about my sermon, and I was thinking about that moment. And I thought, what if I'd been driving, and I hadn't seen the stop sign, and I had driven through it? And take it a little bit further, and suppose I had hit someone and caused an accident. Now, let me ask you, would I have been responsible? Yeah. Would I have been guilty of running the stop sign? Yep, no question about it. But is there a difference between blowing one off that you know is there or missing one you absolutely didn't see? That's why they call those accidents. And knowing I would never have run the stop sign, I, I didn't even know it was there. Friends, in the Scriptures, there's a concept of blameless. 
that has to do with obedience in the realms you know and understand. And it's pointed out in the Gospels when Jesus says, he says some interesting things to a couple of different people. One is, you remember the guy that was lame and laying by the pool waiting for somebody to, to help him into the water and never happened, so he just laid there like forever. And Jesus comes along and says, do you want to get well? And, and he says, well, no one can put me in the pool. And I won't go into all the details of that story. But anyway, Jesus heals him. And then he sees the guy later, and uh, Jesus says, uh, you know, oh, by the way, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. Now, we kind of intuitively know what Jesus meant, but let's think about this abstractly for a moment. What if Jesus was really saying to him, go, and from this day forward, I don't want you ever to deviate from God's absolute moral perfection." Or something terrible is going to happen to you. How many of you would want to just quit right now? Uh, just stop. Just, just kill me and take me home because it's just going to get worse. Because we know that we cannot live up to God's absolute moral perfection. We don't even understand it all. But what Jesus was saying to him and what we instinctively know is, go and don't do anything else you know is wrong. And to the woman called in adultery, he said the same thing. Go and sin no more. What was he saying to her? Go and never deviate from God's moral perfection? No, he was saying go and never again do what you know is wrong. In other words, there is a concept in Scripture that we are held accountable in terms of blame for what we understand. And the way God works is when we first come to Jesus Christ and we're, and we're born again, He deals with the big stuff in our life usually first. He wants to kind of corral that and bring it together and, and clean up the outside because it's so awful. And then as you go down the road a little bit further, He starts dealing with other things that you didn't even think about in the beginning. He puts His finger on those and says, okay, now I want you to stop this. Now I want you to start this, you know. He begins to build those things into our lives. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, you know what he's working on now is attitudes. He begins to home in on how you think. Not just what you do or don't do, but how you think. And how you feel about stuff, your attitudes. He wants to make you look like Jesus. And that is a progressive growth of understanding. And listen, God holds you responsible for what He has shown you. Because by His Spirit, He will enable you to obey. And He waits to make you accountable until He shows you other things. And if you are walking in a condition of obedience to what you know God has given you, in the power of His Spirit, we can describe you as blameless. Even though in the ultimate sense of the word, you may not be sinless. You are blameless. And I'm grateful for that verse in 1 John that says, If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, continually cleanses us from all sin. If you're walking in the light as God is in the light, and you're having fellowship with Him, what sin is there? All the stuff you don't know about. 
But it's under the blood. It's under the blood. It's always under the blood. But we are responsible for what God has shown us. And he gives us his spirit to enable us. And so he can hold us accountable. And what Paul was really praying here is he says, I want you to walk in holiness. I want you to walk in godliness. I want you to walk in the power of the Spirit as to what you know God is doing for you. And then as you go along, He will show you other things. And furthermore, He ends His prayer in, in 1 Thessalonians. He ends His prayer that God will preserve them. This is like saying, I don't want you to lose any ground. I want you to at least stay up to speed with where you've gained. Don't go backwards. Preserve your blamelessness. Through your whole being, spirit, soul, and body, until the day of Jesus Christ, I'm praying that you'll move forward and never back up, never lose ground, that God will preserve you until Jesus comes again as you walk in holiness. Do you see how intensely practical Paul's prayer is here? I mean, isn't this very specific? People in trouble, they need to know and have their love abound because the tendency is to focus inwardly. And people under stress and undergoing temptation, they need the practical holiness that the Holy Spirit can bring. And Paul's praying for them that they will hold fast to their walk with Jesus Christ and never back up. That God will preserve them. Well, they apparently got the message. In fact, the Thessalonians got so excited about following Jesus Christ, that they fixated on his second coming. And you get to Second Thessalonians, you find an interesting thing. Did you know that you can take a good thing that is totally true, and you can push it out of balance, and it can become a problem? Did you know that? Truth out of balance will get you in trouble every time. And the Thessalonians, he's saying amen. That's always he's just shouting unto the Lord. That's what babies do. They cry out to God and give praise and glory. Isn't that neat? Praise the Lord. I love babies. <laughs> Here is a precious doctrine of the coming of Jesus Christ. And as this church begins to go along, they actually get fixated on that doctrine. To the point that it obscures, I started to say obfuscate, and obscures isn't much better, is it? (laughs) To the point that it kind of brings everything else into the background, and they're focused on this doctrine of the second coming of Jesus. How can you go wrong being fixated on the return of Christ? Well, if it occupies all your time and all your thoughts and you can't get anything done, you have truth out of balance. Have you ever met people like that? All they want to talk about is eschatology. Let's have a Bible study. Okay, let's study Revelations. Let's have a Bible study. Okay, let's study prophecy. That's all they want to do. They want to study prophecy, Revelation, all the time. They're always wanting to know what's going to happen in the future. Meanwhile, their life may be falling apart right now, and they may not be doing anything for the kingdom, but they want to get, they're just caught up with this future stuff. We're supposed to be caught up with the blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be anticipating His coming. We're supposed to be excited about that. 
but not to the point that it obscures our life right now and the ministry that God has called us to. And some of the Thessalonians, remember their temptation to be lazy? Some of the Thessalonians were so focused on this, they'd actually quit their jobs. They're out sitting on the mountainside waiting for Jesus to come. They're listening for the trumpet day after day. They get up. I wonder if it'll be today. What do you think, George? I don't know, maybe so. Let's just sit here and wait and see what happens. And meanwhile, who's taking care of them? The people that are still working. They're probably chiding them. What's the matter? You don't have any faith. You still got your job. What's wrong with you? And, and this is, and hey, watch your mouth. I'm feeding you. You know, this is the thing that prompted Paul to say, if a man's not going to work, don't let him eat. They were out of balance. And Paul says, I'm, I'm praying for you. He's praying again. He says, I'm praying for you. And I'm praying specific things for you that God will do in your life that will kind of bring the correction. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, this is what he says. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and that you uh, in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the coming of Christ and He's talking about what they're going to look like when Jesus comes. But he says, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. What does that look like? Well, if you go to Ephesians, if you study kind of all the writings of Paul, you go to Ephesians, you come to Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul says this, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith God, Christ, has called you. And you say, what is that manner? What is that like to walk worthy of the calling? Well, it's the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. And what is that? Everything we're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. He starts out by telling us, God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. He's given that to us. He's put the Holy Spirit in our lives as a down payment and guarantee of our future redemption and glory. He's invested in us. He has raised us up and seated with Him in heavenly realms. Now we are to walk in a way that reflects the glory and the character of Jesus Christ in us today. That our lives would reflect Jesus today. And so Paul's praying this for them. He says, I want to pray. I'm praying that God will count you worthy of your calling. That your life will reflect who you are in Jesus Christ. And these people that are out sitting on the mountainside, not working, waiting for a trumpet to sound, are are not being good examples. They're not modeling the Christ life. Paul says, you've got a job to do now. Remember what Jesus said, work for the night is coming when man's work is done. I talked about that with work ethic a few minutes ago. Jesus tells us, occupy until I come. There's something you're supposed to be about while you're waiting for my return. And that something is manifesting and communicating the message of Jesus Christ and reflecting His character and His life to the watching world. You're here for a reason. Get about the stuff. Be busy. And so Paul prays, secondly, that God would fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. And then He would do that in power. The 
New American Standard Version says that God would fulfill your every desire for goodness and work of faith and power. And I thought to myself, oh, that's a dangerous prayer. Now think about it a moment. How many groups of people, churches or otherwise, how many groups of people would you pray that God would fulfill their every desire for goodness? I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to my mind is, boy, that could be a loose cannon. That I want God to fulfill your every desire. And then the Spirit of God checked me as I was thinking about that and reminded me of two things. Psalm 37 immediately came to mind. That God gives us the desires of our heart. Now, I believe if you read that psalm carefully in the context, what David is saying there is not that God gives me everything I want, but that he puts the wanter inside of me, that he, that he puts a yearning, he puts desires in me and, and fulfills them. And then the other thing I realized is, is that an, an old adage that it's easier to steer a moving car than one that's parked. Now, when that phrase was made up, cars had manual steering. And if you've ever tried to turn the steering wheel, the, the 8 o'clock crowd, they all recognize this. <laughs> Some of you may never have been in a car with manual steering, but if you've ever tried to turn a car with manual steering while it's parked, that is a tough job. In fact, I used to play driving in my parents' cars when I was like five or six or seven, you know, and we would turn the wheel and turn it and turn it, and you let it go and it go tunk, you know, and then you start again because it won't turn. But if you get the car rolling, all you have to do is a little bit of care in there, and it just it just goes where because it's moving. And then I thought about Paul's prayer that God would fulfill every desire of yours for goodness and every work of faith. And I thought, you know what Paul is saying? Number one, I trust God to put things on their heart. And number two, I trust Him to guide and perfect those things as they go along. I'm not worried about them doing the wrong thing right now. I just want them to do something. And if they'll get moving, God can direct them. And so I'm praying for that. You know, I, I, I didn't get here to make the big push during the announcements, but I'm going to plop that, uh, that uh, lecture table with the sign-up sheet for, for Fiesta Day Parade right in the exit as you go out this morning. So you have to knock it over if you ignore it. <clears throat> but, but let me say, you know, we've thought about a couple things just in the next few weeks. We've talked about a Fiesta Day Parade, and we've talked about a backpack bash. And, and people have all kinds of interesting comments to make. Pro or con, you know, like, okay, why are we doing a parade? Well, because we want to get out there and, and, and we want the praise team to just make a, a glorious sound unto Jesus. And we want people to know that the Alliance Bible Church exists in the city of McHenry. And we want to walk alongside the parade and we want to hand out information that tells them about the church. And some people say, well, well how's that going to help? I mean, you're going to win souls to Christ. What's that going to I don't know. It's presence. It's just, it's just getting out there and doing something. It's a desire for goodness. <clears throat> Paul says, I'm praying that every desire you have for goodness will be fulfilled in power. Because God will use that. God will anoint that. God will bless that. And, you know, if, if there's anything amiss, I trust God to fix it. 
And, and the, the, the backpack bash in a few weeks, you know, some people have asked some interesting questions. Well, how are we going to know if the people coming to get stuff have real needs? There's a flaw in the there's a flaw in the in the theory here because how are we going to screen? Well, we're not going to stand out there in a parking lot and make people show us their W2s and 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 prove their their need and show us their budgets. Just whoever shows up, we're going to trust Jesus to bring people that we can connect with and love. You know, what plan is perfect from the get-go? What plan is, is without flaw? What doesn't need some guidance along the way? But what Paul was saying is, every desire you have for goodness, I'm asking God to just bless your socks off. I'm asking Him to fulfill it with power. I'm asking Him to demonstrate His power in you. And every good work of faith, I want that to prosper in you. He's trying to get them focused on the here and now. And asking God to, to bless and motivate and guide them. And then, you know what happens when, when we get busy in the here and now? Remember, this church has still got these stressful things going on. People got problems. People have always got problems. Sometimes more than others. This church is trying to do this. And he says, in the next prayer, he says, I'm praying that God would comfort and strengthen your hearts. Verse 17 of chapter 2. That God would comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Why would you need your heart to be comforted and strengthened as you're working in the kingdom in the ways that God has called you? Have you ever accepted an assignment in the church or in some area of ministry? And after a few months... It's like, man, there's not enough help. It's like, people aren't supporting this. No one's coming to this. And, and after a while, you know, I've been involved in church ministry, preaching and teaching for 35 years, 36 years. No, 38 years. It takes me a while to add it up. It's been a while. And I cannot tell you how many times over the years I've heard people get frustrated and grumbling and complaining. You know, there's no help. I have to do this by myself. I'm getting tired of this. I'm not seeing any results. People get weary with well-doing. Paul warns of that in Galatians 6, 9 when he says, let us not grow weary in well-doing. He says, I know. I know when you get busy in the present moment, with things that God puts before you, I know there's a tendency for it to get old. There's a tendency for it to wear you out. I know there's a tendency for it to take your energy. I'm praying that God will strengthen your heart and comfort you. In other words, that as you engage, God will give you comfort and strength in the inner person. That there will be rich blessing you know, really the truth is, friends, we get exhausted in doing God's work when we step out of the realm of the Holy Spirit's power and we begin to do it ourselves. But sometimes that little switch can be so subtle we miss it in passing. And when you find yourself tired and frustrated and worn out, one of the things you might want to ask yourself is, am I in the Spirit? Am I in the power of the Spirit? 
Am I living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Why am I doing this? Is it for the church, for the pastor, for the board? For, or is this something God called me to do? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And in whose power? But Paul's praying for them. He says, I want you to be comforted. I want you to be strengthened. And then his final prayer to the, to, to the Thessalonians is, he says, I want the peace of God himself, the God of peace, to comfort you and grant you peace in every circumstance. You see how intensely practical Paul's praying is? You know, the first letter, I want your love to abound, and I want you to be preserved in blameless holiness. I want you to walk with Jesus. Second letter, you guys have gotten distracted, you've gotten fixated over here, and, and you're failing to engage in the moment. I want God to bless your work in your community, in your church, in your life. I want Him to, to use you. So I'm praying that He will fulfill every desire you have for good, for goodness, and, and every work of faith. I'm asking Him to bless that with power. And when he does it, I want him to, to strengthen you and comfort you and give you peace and that you'll know the power of God in being engaged in the moment. We have a role to play right now. Jesus is coming. Praise God, Jesus is coming. But until he comes, he said, occupy. And if you ask any general of any army, occupying is not a passive role. Occupying is an active engagement and demonstration of the presence of that military power in, in the name of the country that sent it. Occupying in Jesus until he comes is the demonstration of the presence and power of his kingdom in this moment until he comes back. Don't give up any ground. Occupy until I come. And Paul says, that's what I'm praying for you. When you pray for others, do you try to put yourself in their shoes? Do you try to ask God to show you what they need? Do you try to be specific in your praying? I believe when you study the prayers of Paul, when you look at the churches that he's writing to, for whom he's praying, that he is addressing their needs in specific ways. And that's what he wants us to do, to pray that way. And if you're in the situation of any of the Thessalonians, then his prayer for us is walk in holiness, walk in blamelessness, allow God to get you engaged and bless you in the work. Father, thank you this morning for your word to us. I pray that you would teach us how to pray effectively with your Holy Spirit's guidance, looking into the circumstances and challenges in the lives of other people, and then by Holy Spirit anointing. For we don't always know how to pray as we should, but you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us. Sometimes to make intercession through us with groanings and utterings that we can't even articulate. We don't even have words for them, but, but Lord, you know, and, and enable us to pray for one another with thoughtfulness, with focused insight, with specific request that we can see worked out in their lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.